Thank you very much to Capitaline for inviting me to moderate this uh, panel with this very hot topic. Uh, Mr. Bornozis kindly introduced me and the panelists, so I'll just uh, continue. Um, and uh, to start the discussion, I think it's important for the audience to understand what each of these uh, uh, service providers is uh, doing and how they are helping their clients uh, reach the ETS uh, goals. I can start with uh, Samatis, who is okay. next to me. Thank you, Alexia. Good morning to everyone. Uh, so, um, our typical role is to um, work as a verifier. So, we're looking to their data and we do our own calculations and make sure that these data are correct. Apart that, uh, we have started working few years ago looking into the draft text of the directives and the amendments so we start informing our clients about what is coming and uh, what preparation would be needed from their side. Uh, we had some meetings also with the clients of our clients so we had uh, discussions with charterers and to see what would be their expectations and how we could better prepare you know to support the whole implementation. So we started working on our uh, tools, our, our digital tools, and we prepared a system that we can um, validate their data in a few minutes and be able to, to provide some validation statements in order for operators to be able to provide to the charters. So after that, uh, we continue engagement with, our, with the regulators. So we, ha we have uh, meetings uh, with, uh, within the European Commission and EMSA to understand the implementation and pass this information to, to our clients. And we have also some other tools that they can go into our site and, and insert the IMO numbers of their vessels and see, have, have an understanding about what could be their compliance cost based on their past data as they have been reported and are available in the EMSA 30 systems. Thank you, Stamatis. Uh, Vasily, how about you? <laughs> good morning, good morning. Um, okay, nice uh, question. Uh, sailing into the high seas, this is the motto of the organizers. Uh, let me add, uh, or allow me to add, sailing to the highs, into the high seas by greening your fleets. So the answer to how is just innovate and initiate the process to green your fleets. Um, I'm, I live in Brussels the last 16 years of my life, 10 of them working for the European Union. And uh, it was interesting that I, was, I, I worked also for the uh, creation of this uh, multi-annual financial framework 21-27. So all these years I experienced the integration of different sectors of the social and economic life of the European Union. The banking sector or the defense sector more recently. Always the reaction of the sectors was, this is not going to apply to us, this is not going to work. Uh, and guess who was right at the end? Always the European Commission. So as soon as a sector is integrated in the European regulatory framework, there is only one way to follow it and also to influence it in order to be improved because this is not uh, uh, a regulation or a directive is not a standard document which stays for life. Uh, it can be adapted. The good thing with the European Union is that always when they 
um, uh, adopt policies, they provide also uh, funding tools, funding schemes for uh, the new sectors to be integrated and to apply these policies. And this is the case here. So ETS for the shipping sector is not just an obligation. I know it is heavy to follow, it has consequences, but it is also an opportunity, an opportunity to uh, access EU funding, mainly through the Innovation Fund, and I will come back to this later, uh, in order to green the fleets. We are working on a number of projects because this year's call is the first call which uh, integrates the shipping sector as well, so 800 million euros are devoted to the maritime and transport chapter of the Innovation Fund call, a call of 3 billion euros, annual call. And I was surprised to see that there were two types of um, shipping companies. Those that they still resist to the reality. Ah, it's not going to be for us, it's very expensive, we cannot do it, it takes time, there are no technologies, and so on. And there are others, I would say the minority, that they were very well prepared with very interesting projects, ready to innovate and to green their fleets, at least to initiate, it's a process. But you have to start from somewhere in order to reach the targets of the European Union. So the answer to how is by innovating and greening your fleets, and there is funding for this. Thank you, Vasilis. I like the way you put it, that it's not only an obligation, it's also an opportunity. Uh, Arli? Good morning, and thank you all very much for the opportunity to participate. Uh, Nick, what an extraordinary achievement to bring 700 ship owners together at 9 o'clock in the morning in Athens. I, I don't know how you do it. That's, uh, it's remarkable. Um, in our conversations with our clients, the focus the ETS focus is really compliance. How are they going to be able to provide the reports? How are they going to ensure that they have accurate and timely information? And maybe put it another way, how can they ensure that they as ship owners pay nothing in terms of the EUA unless they happen to be on the spot market? That's exactly where the focus should be now, figuring out how to be in compliance with the requirements. Our focus really is the next step of the ETA. Once you've figured out how to do the reporting, once you've figured out who of your clients are truly credit worthy in the EUA context, then how do you turn to the, ETA, the EUA and the ETS mechanism to become more competitive, to become a winner, to distinguish your ships, your fleets, your operations from those of your competitors. And luckily, we know the answer because we were listened to Dr. Kokorakis this morning about one good way to become a competitor, one good way to become a competitor right away is to retrofit our ships, take advantage of the low-hanging fruit in terms of fuel economies, and to take advantage of the incentives that other elements of the carbon markets bring to the table to encourage you to retrofit. And as many of you know, that's what Marsoft has been doing for most of the past five years, to help our clients gain access to these growing carbon markets. So I look forward to talking about more specifically how those carbon market incentives 
can be brought to bear to make your ships more competitive in the ETA world. Thank you. Thank you, Arlen. Frederike. Yeah, good morning. My name is Friederike. I'm uh, from Zero 044. We are a company that helps you comply with EU ETS. And I think even more importantly, um, understand the costs that come along with it and make sure that you can pass on and account for the costs of EU ETS because in most cases we do have an existing fleet that unfortunately isn't carbon zero and the cost can be significant. So we work for owners, for charters, for ship managers who all play their role in this ETS stakeholder alignment game where you have to agree in charter agreements and ship management agreements on who is doing what in ETS who's owing someone a payment of EU allowances or a payment of cash for ETS costs, who wants to invoice someone else uh, in the form of EUAs or cash, who needs to trade and how, and how do you link EU allowances that you might uh, collect on your union registry account, how do you link that back to your voyages, your, charter, your charters, um, your, your vessels? And our software helps to do that. So we've, we've built, in essence, an accounting system for EU ETS that helps you keep track. We observe your union registry account uh, in our product and, and your teams can easily follow the money, as we call it, in, in ETS. And understand then very well what the cost is and what the benefit might be from retrofits or other green funding options that you have a clear um, financial view on, on how this regulation is affecting you. Thank you, Federica. So from your experience as service providers, how ready is the shipping industry to comply with EU ETS? Uh, Vasilis mentioned that uh, you know, a few are ready. And what steps should shipping companies take to ensure compliance with the EU ETS regulations? Frederic, you want to? <laughs> I can go first. Um, yeah, I think it's, it's a step-by-step -step process. The, the very first thing is you should make sure that you actually have the data ready to understand your exposure. So having reliable emissions data from your fleet is the very first step. And if you have a check mark on that, that's already great. But we see some of our customers who still are struggling with that, that really the data you get every day in your noon reports is reliable and is a good basis for your invoicing or your payments uh, for EU ETS or your trading. Second step then is get the, get the contracts straight. So sit down with your charters or vice versa, the owners, sit down with your ship managers, agree on who's doing what, who's paying, who's invoicing, who's trading, and what's the rhythm? Will you do it on a per voyage basis, on a monthly basis? Will it happen once a year? What we see currently is that the first charter agreements have been closed. Uh, but many, many are still open, are still in negotiation. Uh, it differs a lot between segments. Um, so we see especially long-term time charters still being negotiated, very different opinions between uh, charters and owners, at least in some segments. In many voyage charter, charter cases, it's a bit easier because the operator will mostly uh, work with an increased freight rate but do you have really your chartering team ready to calculate these freight rates right? And then also understand, 
after the voyage, whether the calculation was right. So there's lots of preparation, uh, preparatory work to be done. And then obviously managers and owners also have to agree on who's doing what now. Uh, managers have always done the MRV reporting in most of the cases. Shall they now also take over the full ETS responsibility? That is an option. But many owners say, no, actually, we feel more comfortable doing that ourselves. But then the MRV reporting shall remain with the manager. That's fine, you can do that, but you need an agreement in place that everyone knows what their risks and their responsibilities are. And now we have a huge confusion actually currently because the EU has finally published the list of shipping companies for the member states of the European Union uh, where you learn uh, where you actually need to apply for a maritime uh, uh, operator holding account, which you need in the end to surrender. And obviously they took the, the MRV list, right? They took the historical view on who has done this in the past, but that's not what your future contracts will be about. So the list currently is really adding, uh, adding to the confusion very unfortunately. Um, we're always saying your preparation should be have a trading account somewhere where you can already trade and store your allowances, figure out this MOHA stuff when, it's, when you're able to figure it out because currently I honestly don't think it's, it's, it's a sound process um, and then you can move from there. So data, contracts, and then final step, internal processes on how do you want to handle this? Who in your organization is responsible? Is it the finance team? Is it the chartering team? Is it procurement? Who's doing what? And we would obviously advise, uh, look at a software like 044 that will help you align all these teams in one process uh, and, and enable you to have a, have a bulletproof uh, process for this. Thank you, Federica. Challenging, agreeing with, you know, charters, managers. You make it sound <laughs> quite easy, but it can be challenging. As, as you mentioned, the long charters, etc., and uh, managers being responsible for e uh, EU ETS as well. Is anyone else from the panel that would like to add anything? Yes. I, as, you, as you pointed out, I'm... I made a reference uh, previously. So how prepared the sector is um, mentally, I wouldn't say so. For the moment, the main focus of the shipping companies we talk to is the obligations. So how I'm going to follow the system, how I can ensure that um, they, they will be charged in the right way, how will I avoid penalties and so on which I understand. It's normal, this is something which is next door. And there are smart platforms, as we, already, as we have already heard from the other speakers, which can help to this direction. Practically, as regards the longer term, which is green your fleet, to avoid penalties, to reduce your exposure to the ATS process, um, I would say even less. And we are discussing right now with a number of uh, shipping companies. Those that they had mature projects because they worked a couple of years ago already in order to prepare, their projects we are working now to submit uh, uh, proposals for, to access EU funding this April. Um, some others, uh, they have initiated their work, but they don't have mature ideas. 
and uh, they do the right thing. And this is my advice, uh, if I say so. Try, first of all, to assess uh, the way, the roadmap, how you are going to green your fleets. In some cases, you need to do modifications. In some others, you, in the new orders, you have to adopt uh, new technologies and new approaches for um, uh, your fleets. And there are ideas. So we are working currently on projects related to alternative fuels, ammonia, hydrogen, biomethanol, electrification, uh, zero emission engines, uh, battery storage, uh, application of wind technologies, uh, so rotor sails for the shipping, and so on. Uh, and the first step is to assess what you have, wh what you plan to have, and what you have today, and to identify which are the technologies you are interested to adopt in order progressively to green your fleets. This is not going to happen within one day. It's a process, but believe me, this is a process that the energy-intensive industries are following as well because they are already exposed to the ETS process and, and other companies um, as well. So you need to have a plan, and the plan is the resultant of an assessment and a, a roadmap, a plan how you are going to do that. The second is to approach technology providers. So our first step is the assessment. The second step we do is to link uh, the ship owners with the appropriate technology providers. And I can assure you here in Greece, but also in all countries, there are such kind of technology providers that they have very progressive uh, technologies, not at the face of uh, uh, research and technology, but very close to the market. In, uh, technology terms, technology readiness level seven to nine. And then start discussing projects on how to integrate these technologies in your fleets by using the appropriate financing tools, starting always with grants. And then, of course, by identifying other sources of financing uh, which are promoting the, the greening of the fleets. There are today even from the European banks, uh, the institutional banks, I mean, tools for the shipping sector to use in order to innovate and green. So assessment, link to the technology providers, design of the appropriate projects, identification of the appropriate financing and funding schemes, and then action. Thank you, Vasily. Ali, you want to add something as well? Just uh, one, one quick observation. I, I've actually been surprised in my conversation with owners uh, at the degree of confidence that uh, owners express in their ability to manage the, the ETS. Uh, you've been doing a great job, perhaps, or, or owners are overconfident. Um, I, I should say failure to, to the, the underlying assumption that most owners have in, in, in the conversations we've had is that they're going to be able to uh, lay off their entire EUA exposure to the cargo or to the charters. Um, and that's a good ambition. Uh, if you fail to do so by even a small margin, it's costly. 
uh, if you miss 10% of your sailing days for some reason, it's easy to see a $50,000 charge per ship. So I would certainly encourage all of the owners who have that, that naturally high degree of confidence that we see in shipping to, to have the conversations with providers of services who are going to ensure that they, that they don't miss any of their steaming days in, in the uh, uh, coverage with, against the EUA. Thank you, Arles. Yes, uh, quickly, because I understand we're out of time. So uh, I think, and I can, uh, I mean, we could split the, the compliance in, in two parts. So the first one is, the, you know, the, the data uh, handling and uh, reporting uh, through the MRV. And the second one is, you know, the administrative part about, you know, the allowances within, within your uh, accounts, etc. So I think, and, and discussing with owners, that they are very familiar uh, regarding the first part because they have done this for many years up to, from 2018 that we had the MRB, so they know what to do. They have only a, a, a challenge now to, to amend their process to calculate the methane and nitrous oxides, which are the additional greenhouse gases that they need to report. And, and, and the additional uh, reporting on company level. So uh, they, they feel confident on this, and this has, will be carried out by the technical departments. However, the second part is something new for them. Uh, the, and they have to engage you know, additional departments and stakeholders within, within their uh, own organization, but also uh, in consultation and cooperation with, uh, with external st stakeholders as already mentioned about how they are going to transfer the cost to the, to the charters. And I think this is uh, the most challenging part for them, how they can open their accounts. There are currently some restrictions from uh, European Commission according to the directive that you need to have the same entity responsible for the MRV and the ETS. And as mentioned by Frederick, there are also some managers that are not going to take the responsibility in terms of the EUS. So, what we see, they face a challenge about uh, having all these um, uh, different accounts for each registered owner. So this is going to add them some additional administrative burden, which now they are concerned. Thank you. Thank you, Stamatis. Um, my next question, uh, although I think Frederica covered uh, some part, is how does monitoring and reporting work, and what kind of data do companies need to track, and how can they ensure accurate reporting? Is there anything you need to add on that uh, part? Or I can... I'm looking at the authority. <laughs> is there anything you would like to add, Samantis? Um, briefly, um, as I mentioned previously, I think that <coughs> they are already in a, on a good shape of on this, you know, they have done this for many years. Um, of course, now they are trying to do it in a more automated way. So uh, there are four methods about how they collect data uh, on board the ship. What we see now, the recent trend is uh, they want to create some APIs, program interface with our system in order for them to have a, a fast uh, verification in order to produce, you know, these validation statements. This, this is a new, let's say, commercial requirement from, from their side. They need, they need to be able to, to collect the data as accurate as possible. Uh, and be able just in few minutes or you know, within a couple of days to be able to have their data validated in order to submit this information 
with the validation statement from the verifier along with the underlying data to their charterer in order to be able you know, to be compensated uh, with relevant allowances. This is um, what we see in terms of, of what they want as an improvement in the whole process of data handling. Mm. Yeah, and maybe to add to that, I think MRV reporting in the past has been on the owners end, and then if they manage it, their technical manager to do it for them, th those two parties or those two stakeholder groups have done it. And now the charter is obviously also very interested in these data because they mean money for, for the chartering side. Now in a long-term time charter, the charter would also install their own systems on the ship and, and get their own reporting. And this might now differ from what the owner or the technical manager have reported. So we want to find this, this shared data truth where I think the verifier um, is, is really needed to find this continuous verification process where both parties hopefully can trust this. But now very immediately, when you try to account for ETS, you need to exchange these data. So, so reporting, and it's in all the BIMCO clauses as well, right? That there is supposed to be a notification to the charter of the data, and then you have some back and forth about the data quality. And it all brings us back to, do you trust your own data? How is the process organized from the ship? How is the crew educated about entering these data? Because in most cases, it's still manual input, put it's not sensor data. So I think there's also still a lot of work in this data cleaning process because ABS can't do a miracle or DNV or any of the other verifiers, right? They can only verify what they can trust and see. So I, I think this process shouldn't be underestimated. Thank you, Frederica. Um, my next question is, how does the EU ETS create financial incentives for reducing emissions in the shipping sector? Can you explain how the carbon pricing mechanism works and its potential impact on shipping companies? Arli? What is the price of carbon? It used to be $100 a ton in the ETS. It's now 60, oh, excuse me, euro. It's now 60. Um, in the voluntary markets, the price of carbon ranges from about 75 cents to several hundred dollars. So the price of carbon that we're all getting used to is oddly enough not the price of a molecule, but the price of the, the, the molecule in a particular context. Focusing on the context of the EUA, why was the price $100 six months ago and 40% lower today? The answer probably has to do with the wind and the rain and the rise of nuclear, the recovery of the nuclear power plants. The European Union is, is uh, sources of renewable energy have rebounded remarkably over the last few years. We are gonna have more nuclear power over the next five years than we've had over the last 10, simply because of the, the, the processes by which the nuclear power plants are rejuvenated. The wind is blowing, renewable power is, is available from the wind farms, and the water is flowing down the rivers and thus providing the cooling that is necessary to run the plants. So these are the factors that will drive ultimately, will contribute to the drivers of short-term fluctuations in the EUA. In the longer term, you're going to see that the government will intervene to set a target price. 
the nature of its intervention, the timing of its intervention is, is something that the experts in Brussels know more about than anyone else. But in general, we, we do know that that intervention saved the market from a complete collapse 10, 15 years ago into something which meet, has put a viable price on, electric, on, on CO2. The pricing in the voluntary markets, which represents a vital complement to the compliance markets, is driven by another set of factors. And in the short term, those factors have been reputational. Bad actors have distorted the requirements that are to issue carbon credits in those markets. That distortion has been discovered and the costs of, of that distortion have been made clear by the SEC in, and, 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 and I should say and the lawyers in the United States. And so we've seen the, the impact of reputation driving prices there and we can anticipate that the focus since COP of, of earlier, uh, of sorry, of late last year, is that quality control, quality assurance, reporting and transparency are all those efforts are going to be trebled in, in the uh, voluntary markets. And I can tell you as a participant in those markets, we see that, that demand for stronger reporting and quality emerging. And so we're seeing the projects that in the voluntary market that meet the emerging standards for transparency and quality. They are achieving premium pricing that in that market can be $30 a ton, $20 a ton, $10 a ton, depending on the nature of, of, of the uh, commodity. Pricing, some say near 50 is when you become most relevant in the voluntary market. But in the ETS, we can continue to expect volatility in pricing. And if trends go as, as they have over the last year with the rise in renewables, there's going to be less CO2 emissions and less demand for EUAs. And unless the government come, steps in to reduce the supply, there is some significant downside to the price of EUAs, at least in the short term. For all of you ship owners who are designing their hedging strategy based around standard prices and a look at the forward curve, you should be aware that there is no liquidity in the forward curve and no real price discovery going on there. Maybe to add to, uh, to your question, um, uh, how does ETS incentivize you to, to go greener? Uh, it obviously increases the cost on, on trades into the European Union. Um, so if you want to be a, a competitive provider of a ship there, the, the greener your ship, the, the less the extra carbon tax on that ship. So there is an incentive, a direct incentive to do that. And um, we expect that kind of the, the world fleet will be reshuffled a bit and the more efficient uh, ships will be sent to Europe. Um, and then obviously once that's not enough anymore, you need to invest to make the ships greener. I think this will all be amplified next year when uh, fuel EU maritime comes in, I mean, we heard about the regulatory tsunami in the opening speech, and fuel EU maritime is coming next January, asking you to achieve a certain greenhouse gas intensity across your fleet that is trading into Europe, and none of the existing traditional maritime fuels meet that new objective. So you will be forced to um, add biofuels to your fuel mix, um, and so if you want to competitively 
uh, offer ships in Europe, um, you will have to invest there and, and do retrofits, understand where to supply greener fuels and all of that. So I think Europe is really uh, trying to do this all now with the Fit for 55 uh, package and is really giving strong incentives to all those ship owners that do business in European waters. Um, and then we have to see, as we also heard, what, how IMO will react and how this will play out for the other regions of the world. Yes, <laughs> let me add, and um, this helps me also to clarify a bit about uh, why I call it opportunity, and it's uh, a very nice point to call it incentive. One dimension is the one I, uh, it was mentioned, but let me give you another dimension. <clears throat> Arli said, the more you green, the less exposed you are, progressively. And this is the logic of ETS. So when you get the allowances or when you pay the penalties in the future, I hope you will not, but uh, we do not live in a romantic uh, area. Uh, where does money go? Do you know? They come back to you through the funding schemes which you can access in order to green your fleets. So this is a, a cycle. Commission is gathering this amount, is using this amount of money for the financing and funding schemes they have, which are available to the sectors which are eligible as of this year to the shipping sector. And then you just have to apply in order to get this money back for projects where you will green your fleet. And progressively, you will be greening your fleets, you will be less exposed to the ETS process, and in an ideal world, you will not pollute anymore uh, the environment. Not only you, but also energy-intensive industries, refineries, um, and also those that they are constructing hydrogen uh, plants and so on. If you do not do that, since the pot of, give you the example of the innovation fund, as I said, is three billion, the first call was one billion, because it's an annual call. The second call was three billion. This additional two billion came through the ATS. This year was four billion, and it goes on. So either you take advantage of the tool which the European Union makes available to you to green your fleets, and to be less exposed, or I can assure you, refineries, cement companies, and so on, they will be more than happy that you pay their greening. Thank you, Vasily. Uh, my next question, unless Amati, you want to add anything? Uh, very fast. Uh, yeah. <coughs> listening, you know, my co-speakers, uh, the, the whole concept uh, they described it. It reminds me, you know, an old commercial with George Clooney, the actor, who was trying to get into a party, and the lady hosting the party told him, no martini, no party. It's <laughs> I mean, listening here, I understand it would be a similar concept that uh, they would need to do some investments. Otherwise, these ships will not be commercially attractive, considering also, you know, the... Um, the fuel in maritime regulation, which is coming uh, one year later. So I understand that they will need to, to have some type of martini <laughs> in order to, to get access in, in Europe over the next years. Yeah, thank you. 
Thank you, Samati. I have a lot of more questions, but no time. So let's see if this is the last question, although I want to leave in a positive note. What are the potential challenges or concerns that shipping companies might face in adapting to the EU ETS, especially consider its recent introduction to the sector? Vasily, you mentioned penalties. I don't know who wants to start answering this question. Maybe this will be also my closing remark. That's why I, the main challenge is dare to change. If you do not do that, all the negative or the reverse impact of this uh, policy will return to you. Um, talking to shipping owners, to ship owners, to shipping companies, I see that for the moment, as I said mentally, they are resisting to the reality. So change your mindset and dare to change. This is the main challenge. Otherwise, this is a common practice for the European Union to adapt to policies by providing also uh, the tools to do so. This is my main message. And there are, as I, say, as I explained, tools, there are processes, but the main uh, issue is whether you take the decision to change. It's a long way but it's uh, a secure way for you to be more competitive, to make better business, and let's, let's not forget the main uh, concept, the main target here. It's about our kids. So we are working to save our planet, and we all contribute to that. Ali, or Frederike. Um, I don't want to be the spoiler in a European party, but Europe accounts for somewhere between 8% and 28% of global trade. Work very, very hard to be compliant with the ETS. Your solution has got to be driven by the global markets. The global markets, which have a wide range of requirements, the global carbon markets, which provide a broader range of opportunities to, to provide funding for, for uh, for retrofits that reduce emissions. We're, we're really excited to be part of a program that helping our owners reduce their emissions by 700,000 tons over the next five years using the global voluntary carbon markets. The ETS is going to add to those incentives. But if you just look at the European pond, you're missing opportunities, missing risks in the much larger world of, of, of global trade. Yeah, I think um, you ask about the penalties. I'm sure the audience knows, but obviously if you don't comply with ETS, there is a penalty if you can't show those EUAs that you owe in, in 2025 for the first time, then for each missing EUA, you need to pay 100 euros, plus you then need to purchase uh, the, the missing EUA, and we don't know the market price uh, in, in September 25. So that's a big, very immediate uh, financial risk, and obviously it, it's ad advisable to, to focus on your processes and everything we already said to, to avoid that risk. But I think the challenge, um, and also the opportunity in this, is to, to take this now. The EU is a front runner in all of this. We can expect the rest of the world to follow suit. Best case, the IMO does something. Worst case, kind of each region follows suit. The US do something, Japan does something, China does something. So there will be more of this regulation coming, I think that's, that's for sure. So 
I think the challenge is to now take a longer-term strategic perspective and ho on how you want to make your business survive through this. So what is your investment strategy? What is your retrofit versus new build strategy? What, what bet are you willing to take on new fuels? Or do you want to wait and see, and that's a viable strategy, but then you need to be, be aware of the cost and find the financing for that and so on and so forth. So I think really the challenge is, from my perception, um, I'm in the industry now for two years, shipping likes to kind of wait for the problem to be really here, to react to it. But I think this calls for taking a little bit of a more long-term perspective, and I think that's, that's probably the main challenge. Thank you very much, everyone. We're out of time, huh? Yes, we ran out of time. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you very much.